scripture reading today is Luke 20, verses 19 through 44. When you get there, please stand. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against him, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are the children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week in our time together, I asked you to picture a hypothetical scenario in which you are engaging with someone who has questions about faith, questions about theology. And when we were looking at the verses uh, where Jesus is having these confrontations with the Pharisees, um, I told you that part of what he's doing for us is modeling how do we engage with those who have questions of the faith and how do we particularly defend our faith, defend what we believe in light of, let's say, Jesus as a model for us of how to defend the faith. And this week, uh, we have the same kind of dynamic going on in the text. Um, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He has cleared the temple. And in doing so, he has... uh, really uh, offended and frustrated and angered all of basically every power that exists in the Jewish world. He's got the Sadducees who are against him. He has the Pharisees who are upset with him. He has the scribes who are against him. All of these groups represent the, the powers that be in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, he has everyone except for the Romans upset with him at this point in time. And that provides for us a model again this week of, of how do we engage with those who will have questions about the faith and through those questions seek to sow doubts 
behind the faith that we profess to believe. And at least in the first two instances, the uh, interaction with the paying of taxes and the interaction about the resurrection of the dead, we see that Jesus is answering rather obscure questions wisely, but then that he turns and in the final thrust, he asks a primary question, meaning Jesus, what Jesus models for us this week uh, in, and how do we engage with those who might have questions about the faith is he models for us how do we keep the main things the main things when we are engaging with doubts and skepticism and, and questions. Once when I was um, on uh, Butler's campus, uh, we've, we've been there a number of times um, just conversing with students, having wonderful conversations with uh, many of the students who are involved in uh, crew there and, and others who are faithful believers on campus. Uh, and in one of those interactions, uh, someone uh, stopped by and wanted to talk to us and ask questions that they thought, surely if these questions could be answered, they would become a Christian. And the, the concern that this student had was nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the New Testament, nothing to do with the resurrection or with miracles. They wanted to know whether or not it, whether or not alien life on other planets that is discoverable would in any way thwart or threaten the, the arc of the Bible, whether that would undermine the theology of Christians, and if such alien life were discovered, would that in any way change what we believed as Christians? Now, if you're confused about what that has to do with being a Christian, I was as well. <laughs> um, but all that that uh, serves to show is that what this student was concerned about was, was nothing to do with, let's say, central claims about biblical morality, living in light of scripture. Those might be other things that they were really pushing off considering. And what they wanted to know was about this obscure, nuanced question that really doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything else in, in scripture. And a little bit of that dynamic is going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the Sadducees. Now, let me remind you of the parable that Jesus has just told them. The, the thing that sparks at least our dialogue for tonight, he tells them a parable that says there's a vineyard and the owner of the vineyard lends the vineyard out to tenants. Those tenants refuse to pay the owner of the vineyard, so he sends his various servants to do his bidding. And in sending his servants, they first uh, throw the servant away with no uh, payment. Then they beat the servant, uh, the servant and throw them uh, out, uh, again, empty-handed. And finally, they put the servant to shame and throw them out. And so what the owner of the vineyard does is he sends his son to once again plead with these tenants to return to faithfulness and pay their due to the owner of the vineyard. And in this case, they kill the son and they conclude that this will be the solution to their problem. And in doing, in telling that parable, Jesus is making a number of uh, assertions, jabs in his dialogue with the uh, Jewish leaders, but the, the chief one that he's making is that he is the son, and rather than dealing with the problems at hand, uh, namely that Jesus just claimed to be the son, he just claimed to be the cornerstone, and he told them that if they don't turn from their current ways, this is verse 18 of chapter 20, uh, everyone who does not accept this stone, everyone who falls upon this stone will be broken. So Jesus has just said, I'm the cornerstone, I'm the, the son of the owner of the vineyard, I am the one who you should believe in. And if you don't believe in me, if you reject me, everyone who falls upon that stone will be broken to pieces. The stone will crush them. So what do they do? Well, they don't deal with any of what Jesus has just said. They don't take any of his claims, any of his concerns, any of the main things that he's just brought up. And rather than that, they take a very nuanced, strange, 
and rather arbitrary questions, and they think, if we tie him up in these, we can undermine his authority. And so they ask him a question about paying taxes, and they ask him a question about a hypothetical man being resurrected in the life, and what would marriage look like in such a situation. You can see how those are rather strange and outlandish questions in light of the discussion that is being had about Jesus, is he the king or not? And so what this teaches us, at least initially, is that we can expect the same kind of dynamic to be at play when we witness and when we disciple and when we engage in religious conversation with others. If you're discussing faith, you can bet that someone might take an obscure objection, a strange consideration, and think that if this strange verse or this strange context or this strange scenario is true, that they can somehow dispel with the centrality of the belief that we hold, namely that Jesus is God, that he was resurrected on the third day, and that he now reigns and calls all to obedience. Here's the central claims of what we believe as Christians. And so uh, it might not be uncommon for you to have a discussion with someone where you're asserting these claims to be true, and then someone brings up a random verse out of Leviticus and says, well, what about tattoos? Can Christians get tattoos? And good question, interesting question. Probably shouldn't weigh much into the discussion about whether Jesus is Lord or not, you see? And so we're seeing what Jesus is going to do here, and we're going to kind of apply that to our own lives as we consider um, how do we uh, engage in this way. Now, I've titled uh, our sermon this, uh, this night, Bonfire Theology. And that's because the kinds of discussions that Jesus is in right now are the kinds of things that you could expect to run into if you happen to be sitting around a campfire or a bonfire with other believers or with others discussing faith. Uh, these are the kinds of questions that would come up. Perhaps you've been in that scenario where uh, you've been subjected to or a participant in strange and arbitrary questions that seem to have nothing to do with anything else. That's kind of the dynamic that's at play right now. So with that in mind, let's see at least the first objection that is brought. So Jesus has just claimed to be the Messiah, and he's just claimed that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are rejecting him as the Messiah. In verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But instead of laying hands on him or enacting their revenge, they fear the people. They fear the opinion of the people. We've seen this uh, back in verse 6 of chapter 20. Uh, if they say that Jesus is, or if we say that John the Baptist's baptism is from man, the people will stone us to death. So we can't say that because that would offend the people. And here they want to put Jesus to death, but they can't because that would offend the people. They fear the people. And so what they do instead is they craft this scenario. They're going to send spies from their own ranks to go and to flatter Jesus, to ask a difficult question, and then upon the answer of that question, they're hoping to be able to exploit him as a, uh, a rebel, a zealot, and someone who can, they, who can they turn around and say to Rome, hey, this person wants to overthrow Rome. He doesn't think we should pay taxes. Here he is. Would you please execute him? That's what they're hoping is, is going to take place. So what they do is they send their spies who pretended to be sincere so that they could catch him in something that he said. And then they could deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they don't they don't want to deal with it themselves. They want to punt this problem to Rome. So they're going to lay a trap by which they can solve their problem. Now, the book of Proverbs tells us that the wicked, when they lay traps, will fall in those traps themselves. And here we have something like that on display. Because they lay the trap, and the trap is this. First, flattery. So they asked him, teacher, 
we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? The, the tone switch between those two things is, is stark. They flatter him, and then they ask him a question as though they were sincere, but their question is, is set up to try to entrap him. But as John's gospel tells us, Jesus does not entrust himself to man because he knows what's in the heart of man. And so instead he says, verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness. And so his perception of their craftiness is going to color how he responds. At least at, uh, at this point, we can observe two points of application. The first is that the flattery that the spies demonstrate here is sinful flattery. As Christians, we should seek to speak truly, to not falsely flatter someone, and as is very common in our culture, to flatter someone so that they might think better of us by our flattery of them. As Christians, we are uh, restrained from doing so because the Bible tells us to speak truly. Now, this does not mean that as Christians, we have the right to speak brashly towards people or rudely, certain sense of politeness that is always at play as we relate to other people. But flattery for Christians is wrong because here we see the sinful flattery of the scribes. And by contrast, we can conclude as we seek to speak to others, we should not flatter. We should not falsely speak about them and lie about them because the scribes who embody that here are, in fact, the uh, opponents of our Lord. And secondly, we can observe uh, another point of of nuance, um, which is this. When they flatter and then they ask the question and Jesus perceives their craftiness, what he's demonstrating is that sometimes you answer questions differently depending on the perceived motivations of the person who's asking the question. This does not mean that you have perfect perception as Jesus has, as he's a wise teacher. But suppose you know that someone is asking you a question, a theological question or a biblical question, but they're only doing so because they want to catch you in your words or contradict the Bible or in some way lay a trap. If you perceive that, it is right, and I would say actually biblically modeled for us, to answer someone like that differently than how you might answer that same question for someone who is earnestly seeking the answer to the question. What tempers Jesus' response to be a punch right back or a got you right back is not the question, but it's the nature in which the question was asked. And you might know this, if you're discipling someone, they might ask all kinds of questions that you might think, it's a strange question. But because of the relationship, because of the heart posture with which the question is asked, you might answer that differently than how you would answer the question if someone was being uh, divisive or rude or quarrelsome in the asking of a question. So Jesus at least, at least shows us those two things at the start. And here's the answer that Jesus gives, and it's, make no mistake, a jab right back at the Pharisees who, or the spies of the Pharisees who have asked these questions. He asked the question, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now, for those of you who don't know what a denarius is, if your Bible has a little footnote at the bottom, it might tell you a denarius is roughly one day's worth of wage at the time of the first century. It's basically the coin. It'd be like me asking you today, uh, show me a dollar bill. Uh, what is on the dollar bill? Who's, whose face is on the dollar bill? Or show me a $100 bill. Whose face is on that? Uh, coins in the Roman government also had images of the rulers of that day 
imprinted upon them. And so uh, the denarius has a, a man's face on it. Uh, the man's name is Tiberius Caesar. So yes, he's the Caesar, but he's the son of Caesar Augustus, who we met at the beginning of Luke's gospel, who's the one who uh, issues the census, which draws Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem. So Caesar Augustus has passed on, and now Tiberius Caesar is reigning. And so Tiberius Caesar's face is on the coin. And not only that, but the coin carries an inscription, which says, Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, the divine. Because remember, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, claimed himself to be a god. That's why he claimed to rule as a lord, as, a, as an emperor, over the Roman people. So when he asks this question, uh, when they say Caesar's, they're not just implying that it's uh, like the president. They're also saying, you know, Caesar, the one who demands worship, the one who demands praise, the one who demands honor from his people. That's the kind of government they're dealing with, a tyrannical uh, ruler. So they say Caesar's. And he says to them, quite strikingly, we might add, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, if Jesus is the Messiah, who the Jewish people are expecting him to be uh, at the entrance into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry back in chapter 19, if he's the kind of uh, political emperor that they want him to be, we could expect him to have answered this question very differently. Something like, stop paying taxes to Caesar. Today is a new day, and we are overthrowing Rome, and we are going to take back our land. So that's not the answer he gives. Instead, he says, actually, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And as uh, one commentator at least points out, and I'm not, uh, you can do with this what you will, the very fact that the Pharisees, uh, the, these spies, have a denarius on them, uh, in some way professes that even though while they pretend to be high and mighty, not wanting to pay taxes to Caesar, that they at least pragmatically have the coin on them so that they're still part of this system. It's kind of like if someone, if you've ever uh, been in an uh, argument with someone about the uh, ethical cruelties of capitalism, and, uh, and they're arguing with you about that, but they're doing so while they have an iPhone and brand new clothing and a car that they drive, it, it seems a bit strange. Right? You're participating in the system that you're also claiming to be wrong. Okay? So they have a denarius on them, meaning they participate at least enough to have coins on them to participate in this government. And Jesus simply says, the government is a servant of God, as Paul says in Romans 13, so pay to the government the things that are theirs. The coins are the government's coins. Give them the coins. Who cares? But then he also says, and render to God the things that are God's. Now, the way he phrases the question, whose image or likeness is on the coin, carry that over to the question about rendering to God the things that are God's. And perhaps if you're a student of scripture, or perhaps you've uh, read this text before, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, when God creates mankind, he creates them in his image, with his image upon them. So in effect, Jesus is saying, yeah, give Caesar coins, but give God yourself. Give God to the things that are owed to him, namely man, male and female who bear his image. In the image of God, they are created, and so they are owed to God. So as creatures, we owe God our whole selves, our whole lives. With Jesus being Lord, he lays claim not just on our religious affections, he lays claim on our uh, economic obedience, our civil obedience, our personal obedience, our personal devotion, all of our worship, all that we are, he lays claim upon all of it because he is the one whose image we bear. 
And so, verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but rather marveling at his answer, they became silent. They set out to ensnare him. They walk away amazed by the response which they are given. This is our Lord. This is Jesus displaying perfect wisdom in his response to the Pharisees or the spies, I should say, of the Pharisees. Now that marveling that they're doing, just a quick allusion. Uh, you remember back in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, chapter three, boy Jesus is in the temple and all of the people are amazed and astonished by his responses. Here we have Jesus back in Jerusalem later in life, similar kind of response. From the beginning to the end of his life, he is the one who teaches truly and wisely and profoundly about the authority of God. Okay, so the first party has gone. They have failed to thwart Jesus. And now we have a different group, the Sadducees, um, who come to also try to catch him. Now the difference uh, between the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees is they have these theological disputes among themselves. So the Pharisees, if I could give you an analog today, would be like theological conservatives. They are the people who believe party line across the Old Testament in all of the claims it makes. They believe in the miraculous. They believe in the bodily resurrection. They believe in God's word, in his future promises, in his future Messiah. They believe all of that. The Sadducees, this is going to be a, a rough equivalent, but the Sadducees are like theological liberals. They deny the miraculous things in the Old Testament. They don't really know what to expect about a future messianic king but they believe in the Torah and they believe in the ethical law codes that God has given to his people as good rules to live by. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They know that Jesus does. And so their question is gonna come from a different angle than what the Pharisees asked. They're gonna to try to trap him in scripture uh, with what's called a, a reductio ad absurdum. It's a very, uh, it's a Latin way of saying an argument that starts with a, a premise and argues to the absurd implication of that premise. So when they go to him, they give him this hypothetical scenario. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. That's going to be key. And they're going to try to disprove the resurrection from this hypothetical. So they ask him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. They're just applying the Torah now consider this, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without having children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. This is clearly a hypothetical situation. They're not citing a real life example. They're dreaming up an extreme. And afterward, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven, all had her as wife, and there's no children to break the tie between one marriage being more legitimate than another. So Jesus, what do you say? Do you, dis do you disagree with Moses' teaching on the remarriage principle? Do you disagree with the resurrection? You're stuck. What do you do? Now, this argument that they present is flawed for a number of reasons, uh, and we'll go into that in a second. But just observe the response that Jesus gives kind of in his conclusion. Uh, he says, for instance, in verse 36, they cannot die anymore. He's talking about the resurrection because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses himself showed in the passage of the bush. So Jesus is going to counter their reply 
by going back to the Torah, to a different part of the Torah, which the Sadducees believe in, and he's going to quote to them from the text that they just cited themselves to try to disprove him. But to understand their argument, uh, you have to recognize a couple of things. One is that what they're doing is they're assuming something to be true, and they're pitting it up against another part of Scripture that Scripture uh, implies. So they're trying to disprove the resurrection by the teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy 25. So when Jesus responds to them, what he's going to do is he's going to quote scripture back to them. In this case, just like is the case with the paying of taxes to Caesar, what Jesus is doing is he's modeling for us the best way to disprove faulty theology and faulty claims of uh, these faulty questions is to go back to the text of scripture itself and apply that to our present day. In the case of the paying taxes to Caesar, he alludes to Genesis chapter 1. In this case, with the resurrection, he's going to go back to the text of scripture which they have cited. And in this case, he's going to quote from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses has the encounter with God in the burning bush. And he's going to answer their crazy hypothetical this way. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, where Yahweh introduces himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Verse 38, now here's Jesus applying that text. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered him, teacher, you have spoken well, and they no longer dare to ask him any question. So in this case, the Sadducees come with their attempt to disprove Jesus, to refute him. In this case, you could argue with a more hypothetical, a more extreme, a more strange question. And again, they're not dealing with his claims to Messiahship. They're trying to catch him and show that he doesn't actually understand the Old Testament. But Jesus, being wise, answers their question, and he does so by quoting their own scripture that they pretend to cite better than him back to them. And now we might have to sit for a while and ask the question, what is the implications of this when Jesus says that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage? What do we do with that? Well, I'm not going to pretend to know all of the answers to that question, but at least, uh, at least what church history has shown and many other uh, Bible interpreters have come to is that whatever is going on in new creation, in the resurrection after Jesus' final return and in the new heavens and new earth, what's going to happen there is going to be a unity and a union that while similar to the intimacy that we have in this life, is not quite the same thing. The point is, to ask this question assumes that in the new heavens and new earth, in the resurrected life, marriage is going to be exactly the same. And uh, the laws and rules of marriage are going to be exactly the same. But nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New is that implied. What is taught to us is that that age to come is a glorious age and one in which there will be great unity, great intimacy. And so if you're married right now and you're wondering, will I still be married to my spouse in the future kingdom? You can be sure that your intimacy together will be deeper in eternity than it is now. Whether or not that still looks like marriage is up for debate. What we do know is that marriage continues into the new creation because Christ is wed to his bride, the church. 
So the picture of what marriage implies is still present in the new heavens and new earth. But you can understand it's just a strange question to be asking if the issue that was up for debate is whether or not Jesus is the Christ, right? So what this teaches us, again, we can pull back and ask the question, what are we to learn from this? And at the very least, we can say that what what is being displayed here is this uh, very fine-tuned theological uh, discussion kind of sifting. Um, Those things are not quite as important as getting the main things right. Uh, Maybe I would say it this way, a nuanced perfection in your faith before you are yourself faithful, to understand all mysteries of theology before you will say, I will submit myself to Jesus as king. Well, that's idolatry. And frankly, Jesus is disproving that right here. You might, as a Christian, come to Jesus, come to obey him without having every single question about scripture, about the Bible, and about theology answered. And in fact, to assume that you need all of those things answered before you can be faithful in what God has called you to do is is rather strange. Perfect theology is often the enemy of faithful theology. As Christians, we are called to be faithful stewards and students of Scripture, to examine the text, to learn from it, to submit ourselves to it. But to assume we need to perfectly understand it before we can apply it is just wrong. There are many, many faithful men and women in the pews of churches today who don't know all of the nuances about the new perspective on Paul and debates about what kind of post-millennial or amillennial or premillennial theology they believe, but they know that God calls them to faithfulness, to worship, to steward their lives well, and to be faithful spouses to their husbands and wives and faithful parents to their children. They've got the basics down. They've got the meat and potatoes right. And the idea, especially as learned people, people who have, in many cases, college degrees and who, who love wisdom and intellectual knowledge, there's a danger for us to study the Bible only as a heady text, only as a theological text, which lays no claim on our obedience and a change of life. How this might manifest in your life? Consider your devotions throughout this week. If you spent more time on some strange, abstract, and arbitrary theological nuance, rather than asking the question, how does this cause me to worship the Lord better, be a more faithful believer today, to my spouse, to my neighbor, and in my workplace, I would submit that maybe, just maybe, it is the case that you have taken the Bible and made it a theological, nuanced, bonfire theology kind of discussion, not the kind of thing that is on the ground, faithful Christianity. Now, there is a place, and I would say it's, it's wonderful to participate in nuanced theological conversations. Those are great. I love them. I personally enjoy them very much. But that is not the foundation of the Christian faith. It simply isn't so. And we should get the main things right before we launch into nuanced study. And often, we should only launch into nuanced study for a brief period of time before coming back to the basics and reminding ourselves of solid truth. There's nothing wrong, for instance, to uh, ask the question, what do you think about uh, some commentator's thoughts on a particular verse and how they tend to apply it? But if that prevents you from ever asking the question, how can I be a more obedient Christian today? You can be sure that theology has been displaced from its proper spot. And the, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees both show that in their interactions here with Jesus. And so what Jesus does in his response to them is he takes them back to a central text 
one that does make a claim about the Messiah, which was the issue being debated before they launched into these two side trails. And now he makes them wrestle with the text. You want to debate about paying taxes to Caesar? You want to debate about the resurrection of the dead? Uh, Or, sorry, what does marriage look like in the resurrection of the dead? Jesus doesn't think the resurrection of the dead is up for debate. Here he says, what about this verse that talks about the Messiah, who is David's son? He quotes them, but he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? Meaning that Christ is only the son of David. David himself says in the book of Psalms, and this is from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now this was read for us in our call to worship this morning. And if you'll permit me uh, just a little bit of time to get into the weeds a little bit, I promise I'll be merciful. But uh, there's just some things we have to deal with in the text. Okay? The point of what Jesus is, is saying here is found in verse 44. So if you don't follow any of what I say next, just remember the question in verse 44. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he also his son? So the question Jesus is asking is something like this. If Jesus, or sorry, if David calls the Messiah his Lord, then how can the Messiah be the descendant of David? Because that would mean that David thinks of the Messiah as greater than himself. Okay, so that's at least what Jesus is saying. Now, Psalm 110 is a wonderful psalm, but there's a lot of stuff going on. So what I'd like you to do is find Psalm 110 in your Bibles and look there with me at verse 1. Because we have uh, English translations, some of these questions we'll have to ask of the text are a little bit lost in translation, but uh, it will make sense once we are there. So Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, this is from, uh, I'm reading out of the ESV, whatever translation you have in front of you, you'll see something similar. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the center of the debate is between who wrote the psalm and who is the psalmist addressing. So you'll notice there's a little inscription. For us as uh, English Bible readers, that inscription is relegated to some tiny font above verse 1. But the inscription is part of the psalm. So the psalm actually starts in verse 1, a psalm of David, and then verse 2 is, in our English Bibles, what's verse 1? So David is writing the psalm. That's what Jesus claims. But many today would say that what a psalm of David means is not necessarily that David wrote it, but it is a psalm written about David. So many of the rabbis today who interpret this psalm would say, no, 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 this is not a psalm that David wrote. This is a psalm that was written about David by someone in his court. And that person says, Yahweh says to David, my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this is all talking about David as the king. The problem is that if that was true and that was the interpretation, The Pharisees could have just said that when Jesus asked the question of them in Psalm 110. So in in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, this question is put to the Pharisees. It's used all throughout the New Testament. And and just frankly, that would not have converted any Jews in argumentation if the common understanding was this is a psalm about David. So what's going on is people hundreds of years later are revising the interpretation of the text in order to reject Jesus as the Christ. So that's part one of the debate. So who, who wrote the psalm? Jesus assumes and 
his audience assumes the author of the psalm is David. Otherwise, they would have disagreed with that assumption that he makes, but they don't. Now, the second thing is, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, who's, who's talking to who? So David says, he's writing this, that the Lord, that first L-O-R-D in many of your English Bibles will be uh, like little all caps. That's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's translated like this in our English Bibles as a following of Jewish custom where they would not, provi- where they would not pronounce the divine name. So in our English Bibles, it says Lord and Lord. Although some of you have the legacy standard Bible, in which case they translate that as Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, actually in this case it's Adoni is the correct pronunciation. And so here's the second part of the debate. It's Yahweh speaking, but who he is speaking to is merely a human servant, an Adoni, not an Adonai, which is what is referred to in uh, other places to talk about God. And the debate there is simply a debate over how do you vowel point the Hebrew text. Now, give me one minute of your time, and I promise we will go back to things making sense. In Hebrew, there are no vowels in the initial manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, If you were to go to a Hebrew Bible today and you were to open it up, you would see not just the the main body of letters like we have in English, uh, but you would also see dots and symbols and asterisks and all kinds of things around the main text which indicates what vowels do you say in between the consonants that are written. Hebrew doesn't have any vowels in its alphabet. It only has consonants. The vowel pointings are added later to indicate how do you pronounce certain words. And in this case, the manuscripts available in Jesus' time, they all have the consonants only. That's how the Hebrew Bible is translated into the Dead Sea Scrolls, into the Qumran community. The manuscripts available in Jesus' day have no vowel pointings. The vowel pointings come around 500 to 900 years later by Jewish rabbis called the Masoretes. And they add the vowel pointings. And the vowel pointings, you have to keep in mind, are a commentary on the Hebrew text from a Jewish perspective. So the word that is translated here, Adonai, the second Lord in the text, the the debate is about whether the vowel pointings from 500 years after Jesus think of it as a human person who's being spoken of or a divine person who's being spoken of. And it's not a surprise that people who rejected the Messiah and who still reject the Messiah would vowel point the psalm to say it's referring only to a human, not to a divine person, right? But the original text doesn't comment either way. And again, when Jesus asks this question, no one refutes him on this point, saying he's misunderstood, it's referring only to a human, right? Now, if you're wondering what on earth does Psalm 110 verse 1 actually mean, Jesus or Luke does not actually resolve this for us at this point. He actually just asks the question and leaves it for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes to dwell on. Now, I won't force you to do that because it'll be a couple of weeks before we get to the answer that at least Luke provides. So what Psalm 110 is talking about is the Messianic King. Yahweh speaks to the Christ, the the Lord, who is both David's Lord and our Lord, and says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, or till I put your enemies under your feet. You might remember in Romans, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says of Christ, he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. It's an allusion to Psalm 110. And so what Jesus is saying is, how can David speak of this person as Lord 
when this person is also supposed to be David's son? Or if I could rephrase it in more modern language, how is the Christ truly God and truly man? How is he both divine and human? Here's the question Jesus is making them wrestle with from the Hebrew text, from one of the Psalms, which predicts of the Messiah. And the solution is that God enclosed himself in human flesh so that he could be our perfect substitute, so that the Messiah would not just reign, but also die in the place of his people to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins that they have committed. And not only that, but actually later in Psalm 110, I hope you haven't uh, necessarily turned away from there in your Bibles, but later in Psalm 110, verse 4, it is said that you, speaking of this divine son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when the book of Hebrews comments on that part of Psalm 110, it comments on this as Jesus' more perfect sacrifice than the sacrifice of the Levites. The Levites have to go in every single day to make sacrifice and offerings every single year to make atonement. But what Christ does is he makes one perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, and then he ceases from making sacrifice because he is the more perfect high priest. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is speaking of Jesus Christ, the priest king who comes to reign as the Messiah, but also to be the intercessor for his people. He's doing both of those things. And when Jesus leaves that question hanging to the Pharisees, they're stunned. Now, if you're in a theological debate and you leave your opponents without a response, that means you win the debate. So what Jesus has just done is he's weathered the storm and he's responded with a question that could not be refuted, a question which leaves them only pondering. And this is the question that we have to ask. If Psalm 110 speaks about David's son as God, and Jesus is claiming himself to be that Psalm 110 person, then what are we to do with that? Well, there's only two responses. When God says to obey, we either can obey him, worship Christ as the Lord, submit ourselves to him and all of our lives to him, or we can reject him and reject that claim. Now, not answering or not responding is equivalent to rejecting because this is a kind of claim that, that forces you to a decision and not responding is the same thing as making a choice. As, uh, as one of my mentors has said, this is like if I was to say to my son, Calvin, come, come to me, come over here. Now, if he comes to me, he's being obedient, but if he either walks away in the other direction or just stays still, in both of those cases, he's not obeying what I've told him, right? So it is here, Jesus is saying, I am the Lord, I am the Son. I am the one who reigns at the right hand of the Father. And so what are we to do with it? There's only one of two responses which are appropriate. And if we are believers in Christ, we have made our choice. We are serving the King, we are serving our Lord, who, as Psalm 110 alludes to, is the victorious ruler. He does reign until all the enemies are put to death. So as Christians, we have an assurance of victory over sin, over death, over enemies, over all that would oppose us in this life. We are victorious, not often as we think, but we are victorious in Christ, who is the divine ruler of all creation. And if we reject this king, the other implication of Psalm 110 is that he puts his enemies under his feet. To reject him, to be an enemy of the king, means sure defeat. 
So who are the enemies of the king? The ones who refuse to acknowledge him as the Lord. The ones who refuse to worship him as he is to be worshipped. And as he's just shown us in these last two interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you are the kind of person who rejects or at least delays a decision on Christ on the foundation of you don't, have, you don't know exactly what to do with the book of Leviticus or you don't know how trustworthy is Paul's writings in the New Testament or you don't know exactly the nuances of what Christian marriage calls for, these kinds of nuanced conversations, he's showing you those are not the important questions to answer in order to decide whether Jesus is Lord or not. The important questions to answer is whether or not he's Lord and if so, Obey him no matter what the cost. And you can dive into and resolve all of these other theological questions after submission to the king. But none of those questions get you off of the hook from submitting to the king. And so that leaves us, as Christians, trying to remind ourselves to keep the main things the main things. And for those of us who are still asking questions about the faith, it also reminds us to keep the main things the main things. Nuanced theological conversation does not get us off the hook from the foundations of the faith which we claim to believe. Let's pray. Father, you are God. And you have appointed Christ to reign as he currently does. And the inevitability of that reign is that Christians and Christ are victorious. Lord, for those of us who believe in that truth, would you assure in our hearts more firmly that assured victory that we have? Lord, as we face decay, our sin, opposition, our own doubts, all that assails us in this life, would we look more confidently, more regularly to Christ as the victor, Christ as the conquering king who will not be defeated, who will not be thwarted. Lord, would you give us eyes to see that vision of victory which is ours in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who have not yet believed on him, would you give us eyes to see the seriousness of that choice. Lord, for those who still maintain an arm's length away from you and submission to your son. Would you show the gravity and the seriousness and the weight of that choice? And call them once again to repentance, call them once again to faith, and call them once again to obey the son, to kiss the son, and be obedient to him. We pray all these things together in Christ's name. Amen.